This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl. We're still sitting at the table. We haven't left the microphones <laughs> because all four of us are nerds and we want to do this right. Because um, I mentioned that uh, one of the things that was built here on Nogwolgen to support the, the residency program that you have here is the barn, which is really beautiful. And Eric is staying actually in the barn, in the back of it. And we're going to have a barn talk there on Friday with our guests who are arriving here within the next uh, 48 hours. Uh, but can you say something about what that barn was before it became what it is now, which now it's used for lectures, exhibition, and what was it before the barn? So, so when we found the barn um, and then found out that we had the opportunity to do something with it because it belonged to the house, that took quite some time to figure out. The, but the barn was used as a dump and already for at least, felt like 10 years, everyone in the neighborhood just dumped their rubbish there. Uh, and then there was reminiscence or leftovers from farming. So the back part where Eric is staying had a, a half a meter of pig manure with, um, with nettles growing. And because there was no back wall or front wall, it was just a wind tunnel, uh, super wet. And, and in the middle where it was a bit drier, super dusty uh, and rusty with 20 bulk bunk beds uh, rusted away and fridges and heaps and heaps of electric cables and I mean you couldn't step into the barn really um, it was just uh, endless and coming from Amsterdam we just saw space and when we knew we when we learned we could do something with it we proposed to the the owners to clear it up uh, and then they uh, offered us some money to renovate it for the materials so we just bit by bit every time we drove to Oban we went to the recycle and uh, filled our van we still had a van then so there was many many day trips we lost count I think uh, so we spent two years I think cleaning it's a 20 by 8 meter barn sort of and then the best option because the roof was leak uh, leaking and everything was in a bad state the timber of the roof was really bad so we decided to build a structure inside the barn, sort of a barn in a barn, following the exact shape, but a bit smaller. And the new structure supports the old roof, which was the main solution to like an old asbestos roof that you can't get rid of. Just keep it there and keep it safe. So it's a, it's a big transition you make from outside to the inside. With making that world in a physical sense, but also in a social sense, that you relate to your neighbors, you want to build relationships here. But at the same time, you say that you think bigger because you connect yourselves to a much bigger world out there. Does that sometimes feel like betrayal to the neighbors? I had that feeling when I was curating a space in a very rural village, which had a very clear here and now uh, existence and I was always there but at the same time I was somewhere else because I was relating as you are to a bigger world it's quite complex isn't it to to be one-on-one -on -one with the here and now and the neighbors and and then at the same time relate to all the other things that you relate to or want to relate to 
Yeah, no, I, no uh, I think you're right. Uh, I, I also think uh, it's a good place to be in. Uh, we have a nice distance to the village. Uh, the village, you know, has neighbors lined up with uh, neighbor quarrels. And we have a nice sort of uh, cultural gossip, distance, gossip, gossip. lots of gossip and lots of like uh, usual stuff in every village. But we have this nice distance, both culturally and uh, and also physically. I mean, it's a 10-minute it's a drive to the village. We don't have any real direct neighbors, but we can offer our space to anyone who is interested. So it's in all in a lot of sense, it's um, we don't have the responsibility, but we offer something positive because it's not like with um, Wongama, it was a place that was a social place. So to reactivate it, you have a legacy to deal with, and this had no legacy. It's it it has a schizophrenic side to it that you want to be sort of become one with the neighbors and the land and the, the things. And at the same time, you have this whole other network and world that opens up to you and that you want to relate to. But does it yes. feel as another world for you? No, and I think when you say this, I I have maybe even more the opposite, that with the neighbors, I feel the responsibility to to be more with the neighbors Sometimes it's hard to explain how important it is to be here and to exactly. to help one day with the sheep or to have not time to respond immediately on on a question or yeah maybe that's just what I wanted to point out that it's, it's a complex position that it's you're holding it's yeah it's a complex stance. Welcome back, dear listeners. You've tuned in to our new episode called Thriving on Mill. And with us today, in this very cozy kitchen with rain outside, are our hosts here on Nockwolligen, on the Isle of Mill, Miek Swamborn and Rutger Emmelkamp. Welcome, Miek and Rutger. And for all of us, it's like a very special moment because we're here live on Mull um, with microphones on the table, there's cables, there's a recording device, and that's very festive for us because the, the earlier talks we did were all on Zoom, and now we're here live sitting at the table. And it took us like 48 hours to come here, and we kind of celebrated that slow travel because we started in Eimuiden, took the ferry, crossed the whole of England up to Oban, and took the ferry there and arrived at Mull and took a bus, and there you waited for us when we left the bus but we're still we were still sort of uh underway we didn't we, we we didn't actually arrive yet till we got here but can you tell us where we actually are to get our audience because we're in this kitchen and people don't know you know we don't hear the wind because there's not much wind it's raining now or it started raining this afternoon so maybe you can take our listeners and us here to the Ross of Mull. well um you landed on the east coast, northeast coast of Mal, with a ferry, and then you took the bus and you drove through the magma chamber, the ancient magma chamber of the Ben Moor, which was once a huge volcano. So we're on uh, volcanic stone, rock, mostly granite, and then you drove an hour 
to Finnefort, a little um, uh, port, harbor, opposite from Iona. Yeah, and in the kitchen there are two windows. In one window we see the garden, and in the other window, through the other window, we see the two barns, two old barns <laughs> with rusty roofs, and behind the wall there's the ocean. Yeah, and you took us there this morning. We went for a walk over the hill and to see that. And can you describe a little bit this, the landscape that surrounds this place? Because it feels a bit like Land's End, because we're at the end of this peninsula. It's like a big tongue. And when you just cross the hill that is in, in the front of your house, then you're all surrounded by islands and water. It's sort of an endless repetition of coastlines and water. So the the, um, the Ross of Mull is the most um, southwest tip of uh, Mull, and it's the most eroded part of Mull. It's it's quite flat. It has hills still, but it's uh, pretty pretty weather beaten. Um, so the, the the granite is smooth. I mean, it's it's sharp, but say in general lines, it's quite smooth. Uh, and then it sort of continues into the ocean so with islands so it's an archipelago of islands that we see off the coast and really in the far you can see the uh, the Toron rocks the notorious reef uh, the reason why the lighthouses were built um, so yeah really slowly the land sort of sinks into the sea into the ocean yeah but we also are in the middle of some fields that are worked already for thousands of years yeah, they're on one side, right? On one side you have these farmlands. It's quite interesting that Nagvolgen seems to be on this kind of edge mm -hmm. between cultivated farmlands. And then on the other side there's these more rocky pastures. Yeah, they were worked in the past as well. So that we've seen today was also all like lazy beds and land that people used to let their uh, cattle or their sheep or their... Uh, and also grow some crops. Yeah. And does this landscape have special? Do the people here call it special names? Like, do they? Because we are saying rocks and beaches and things because that's our language. That's what we. Yeah, know. there are, there are many words for stone. There are many words for how the water rimples, uh, especially in Gaelic. I think it's all these words that we still have to learn <laughs> as well. So many hills here. In the neighborhood are called uh, Tormor. Black Island. Yeah. There's in the neighborhood. Uh, there's already three. But how do people find their way then, if there's three hills with the same name? Well, I think it's all context related. So if we, say, I mean, there's multiple Johns in the in the in the area. But if we talk about Johns Hill, then everyone knows that I talk to that they know that I talk about Johns Hill, and not the other John who they know I don't know. So I think that it just functions yeah. quite well and. It's just for cartographers, maybe it's it's uh, problematic if you start listing the hills because then you've got five of the same hills, you know, in an, alpha, in an alphabetical order. But that's not the reality that people here live in. And I'm, I'm looking at the big map uh, behind Meek. Meek is sitting in front of it. So I'm trying to locate where you were. There's a little green patch and you see this road which ends and you're like the one before last house, I think, before the road ends. But then there's a huge, huge, huge patch of uh, more mountainous, rocky area towards the um, south. 
Yeah, it's, it's always, um, if we look to the east, so that's through the kitchen, the, the back door, back side of the house, you can you could watch, you could look for 10 kilometers if you could to, uh, before you see a next house. And all that land in between used to house a lot of people. There were plenty of settlements there, but all abandoned. And um, some of the areas are still used for uh, cattle grazing. So you'll find cows here and there. But there's one section which we call, um, or which is called Chirerigan, which is uh, fenced off for grazing. So that's a, a rewilding project, one of the earlier Scottish rewilding projects. This rewilding project is one of the things that you, as Nog Volugan, as, you, as the, the residency program that you set up here, you received a, a prestigious grant for it, which is even more prestigious since you're not here for so long. So it's really great that you got it. It was a Creative Scotland grant, part of your now nowhere now here program. Like, what was your plan with this rewilding, or how did you how did you in, include that into your program? Um, so, so I have to, we have to say, I mean, we didn't start the Chirerigan project. I mean, it's 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 one of the earlier ones. So maybe 25 years ago, um, Carol Riddell, who lived in this house, convinced the Dutch uh, owners of, of this, this land to buy it. Um, it was supposed to be a social uh, project with a regeneration of the villages, with people living there again. Uh, that failed. That's a long story. Um, but once it failed, the board then decided to uh, just focus on uh, nature. It has high potential to be developed as such, with regeneration of forests and safeguarding some uh, key species for this uh, habitat. Um, so when we moved here, basically part of the um, agreement was that we would um, continue the development or the, the the maintenance, you could say. And as part of so at first it wasn't even part of the residency; uh, it was just part of us living here, and then part of our task, basically uh, in exchange. But then, as we developed the residency, we really felt the potential to connect the residency uh, to the rewilding project because then suddenly we would have inputs, ongoing input, and in connecting all sorts of artists and researchers, their vision with, with that land. But maybe it's important to say that you were asked by this Dutch family who owns this land to come and live here and to take care of the property, right? That's the agreement yes. that you talk about yes. with this Dutch land. Yeah, so it's, that started very open. Like maybe them envisioning us or like offering a sort of a one-year uh, sabbatical to you know uh, have a great time. Uh, but in in that year, we just developed plans that were so ambitious for and, and long-term that um, that we well showed clearly that we had the ambition to stay here and and put more work into the Chiverigan project, but also uh, develop something. Uh, strong cultural for the area mm. and they really uh, support that and did you really use that first year as a test year for yourselves or did you already know that you want to stay longer was it more like that the, fa the dutch family wanted to test you like well let's see if these two artists can well for me i think it wilderness. was with the first step on 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 the narrows or on Erit that i felt that it would fit uh, and I would really love to stay longer. Um, yeah, that was very strong. Yeah, I could imagine myself and us together living here and 
Yeah, it's nice that you say step because in um, you wrote a statement, right, for Nagvolgen for the program that you're you're developing here for this year, and you say that you're looking for regenerative artistic engagement, um, and also that you would like the presence of the persons you invite here, like us, <laughs> this week to have a lasting imprint, um, yeah. not necessarily in the landscape, but maybe more in the community. So this the step and the imprint it makes me think of a letter that you wrote, both of you together to uh, Chiriragan and maybe we can you can share a part of that Remains of a moth amongst glistering hair-like tendrils of the round-leaved sundew. An adder basks in the sun. Its zigzag pattern is disfigured by a swallowed something. When groaning ankles approach, it slitters off inaudibly. A tired foot slips off a bulging pillar and pokes deep into the squelchy mass. At the other foot finds stable ground, the sunken one works its way up. Tightened toes, calf and shin prevent the boot from staying behind. The sound of suction. And in this letter, I, I really like this passage because it shows how clumsy these legs and these feet find their ways in this wild nature reserve or rewilding project you could say but the whole letter is about how complex the relation between you as helpers of this area is and how you relate actually to all these plants and trees and animals yeah could you say a little bit more about because that also seems to be a lead or a, a motive in in everything you do is that how how do you relate to this overwhelming wild landscape so we had this idea to write the letter to the forest quite soon but then we realized like okay who, who exactly do we address the letter to so is that say the oldest tree or the mycelium or the streams like how do you who do you write it to and i, th I think that thoughts ended up in thinking about the forest let's call it that but it's more than a forest whether it has um, seen us at all so far or whether we are just sort of you know still so much outsider even though we've spent a lot of days there and did, did a lot of work uh. yeah you even mentioned in that letter i think that you couldn't sit still long enough to uh, make photographs uh, because hmm. you were you were taking photographs i think uh, on analog so you needed a really long shutter time You couldn't sit still long enough for six minutes, but you don't explain why in the letter. Well, because they were bitten by midgets, I think. Yeah. Oh, it was just very pragmatic. Scotland is notorious for the midgets, and it was only two years ago or something that we learned what the positive impact of midgets are, which they're really important for. Um, uh, they have a big influence in the grazing pattern of deer, for example. So... Without midges, the deer would systematically, you know, graze and browse everything down. But the midges irritate them so much that they go on the move, you know, once they're ir irritated. So um, 
without the midges. Well, with midges, the grazing is much better. Apparently, that's the story. So, in in a similar way, the the midges had an influence on me sitting there with my pinhole camera with a shutter time of uh, many many minutes, and <laughs> I just had to shut the shutter. So the midgets, in the end, influence the kind of photographs that you mm, take. Yes. That's interesting. <laughs> so now we know a little bit where we are, and we've met you and in your house, but um, we didn't meet you personally yet. So let's focus a little bit on the two of you individually, because you are individual artists as well, as being a couple that lives here and and undertakes things together. So Miek, let's uh, start with you. Miek Swanborn, you are a Dutch artist, a novelist, a bookmaker and a translator. And when you are carrying out field research, you say that you travel through time and space. By intertwining your observations with local history and scientific research on flora and fauna, you create frame tales in which drawings, sculptures, raw materials and books play a crucial role. You published, among others, a poetic anthology on seaweeds. It's called The Seaweed Collector's Handbook. And it's it's translated in two other languages or three? Yeah, well, no, the original is in Dutch and it's also translated in German. German and English, yeah. yeah. And I think that book shows uh, that you you always take a very broad approach. So you focus on something quite particular as seaweed and you look at it in a one-on-one -on -one relationship, almost looking in a pool of water and making contact with the seaweed. But then you open up this whole world of references and artists and stories and literature and you bring that all together in your own very specific language. Um, Maybe you can say something about your way of working. Yeah, well, it always starts with a with an encounter with something on a specific place. So when I'm walking or when I'm sitting somewhere observing the place, there not always, but there there when something yeah moves me or I see something that I, is new to me or a question comes up because I just don't understand what I see. So that there's always a very specific moment that something comes in existence or something starts to get me more aware of of new animal or uh, for, to me a new animal or a plant or... And is that is that a slow process? Like for instance, the seaweed book, how, how much time did it take you to, to, to write it and to... That was quite a fast process. Um, because there was a bit of a deadline. Um, but the idea how to write it was quite... That was that came quite quick because I wanted to write it like... Or try to write a seaweed and also the chapters. I, I wanted to have them more almost fluid, like from the one subject into, a, into another without harsh um, cuts or... Uh, and I also wanted to write underwater and... That is now, I'm more used to it now because I sw swim more and I understand more what I see. And I totally understand what you mean, that you go through all the, that it's, you know, you take all these paths and it becomes this this big entity that grows. But it also feels, that's why I ask, is it a slow or a fast process? Because it f feels very um, elaborate. Yeah, because there's so many questions, there's so much research behind it. Yeah, most of the time... When when something starts, I I know kind of a w the form of the work, yeah. 
Like I, I saw uh, uh, scallops, uh, living sc- first living scallops in the bay two weeks ago, and I took it to the ro- out of the water to the rocks, and then when um, dressing myself, there was this clap, and it was it three times it went open and closed itself, and I could just really look very deep into it. It was so beautiful, and then I thought, okay, the tech it was it will be. A, not a poem, but a, a longer text because a poem is too short for this experience or I cannot make it so tight now. But it has this text needs three openings, like three white spaces. That's a very simple idea. And, that, and that it, in the end, there were more white spaces. But um, yeah, that, that shaped uh, the work, I think. So it always starts with this super small encounter of you and something, yeah. a phenomenon or yeah. meeting an entity. It has a big adventure. Yeah. So now we might turn to Rutger. Rutger Emmelkamp, you are uh, you're also a Dutch artist. You're uh, also working as a teacher and um, you call yourself also a program maker. And um, I've noticed that you, you have a, a certain... Uh, arduousness that's a beautiful word <laughs> when you get into something you get completely into something and and you connect all kinds of things whether they are art historical references whether it's literature or deep ecology and all of that you bring together with film with theater uh, and with artisanal crafts or uh, mm, details of architecture for example here on Nogvologen you've done a lot of the building the barn all these elements and it's so clear i think from the details that this realizing and making is a, is part of your of your practice. Um, you were appointed head of the jewelry department at the Rietveld Academy in 2013, and you resigned from that position to dedicate your whole practice and work to Nagvologen in 2017, I think, if I'm not wrong. There seems to be a fascination in all of this, which has to do with, uh, and you spoke about that last night, we were invited by the historical center here of Mull, in, in an old school, which I think is the community center for an evening on maps, and you spoke. Um, so maybe as an introduction for our listeners, in the beginning you spoke of the landscape around here uh, based on a, a map that's hanging in this kitchen. And uh, yesterday you told us that this map is actually stitched together from two and a half thousand <laughs> satellite images. How did, you ma- how did you make this map and what's that process like for you? In, in- I mean, it started... Um, I had a contract at the jewelry department and uh, it was really crucial for the work that I've built up there that I would spend that last year as well of my contract before I could pass on the legacy. Uh, I found that really important because I I, I did cause some uh, arousal uh, with the program there and I wanted to safeguard that. So I decided to stay uh, another year while Mick was already here and we had these conversations, of course, about me exploring the land, and I would ask where you would go. Um, so I, then I looked it up on the map on on, on Bing Earth or uh, Google Maps. Google Maps is really fr- frustrating because you you zoom in, you have beautiful detail of you know you, you could count the sheep, uh, but then you zoom out and everything is this green wash of a uh, like detailless uh, land. And I kind of wanted to have the overview and the detail, so I started to. Um, cut and paste bits around the house and it just grew and grew. All of a sudden it sounds like so romantic, like you wanted to be closer 
Well, it did it did uh, um, improve or it did um, like change our dialogue because at some point Meek asked me for places where she, uh, I would send her, uh, and then I would um, look at my archive uh, of the map and. Uh, I had highlighted some files that I was curious what they were. Sometimes it was a rock sticking through the yeah, forest. Yeah, and we have this TPS, so we could put um, the, the position yeah, in the GPS, and I would then go to wow. in the direction of something, and I would hear a bleep. And then I knew that that was the bleep that or the, the point Rutger was working on in the map. So it came very, yeah, you came very near by, by doing and then what your observations from the land or from say on being on the ground helped me read the map in different ways so one of the things i found out is that the map i was working on the footage is now updated but around these areas it's very slow with a satellite like for years and years it's the same data um and we we noticed that um the the the, the hue of the green varied with the different trees and then I, I sent you to one, and it was a very beautiful old old oak tree. And from then, I just started to browse the map that I made uh, for similar trees, and they were all the oak trees, which is a very important tree uh, in this landscape. Yeah, wonderful. And uh, two and a half thousand in one year time? What is that like? A couple a day, or how do you work on it, or do you just suddenly in a spurt? Apparently, it's it's a huge file that there was a limitation, and I had to start over. I think twice, understanding both the potential. So in the end, I decided to work with the highest resolution images, but it's it's spread over a long period of time, and just getting back to it, the the odd hours that you feel like nothing else, uh, just do another you know couple of hectares or. But that also means, Rutger, if it, if this map that we're looking at is built up from 2,500 screen dumps, that you can even blow it up more and we will see more, right? No, this is just what what I managed with the, the, at the Rietveld Academy, um, the, the workshop assistants. They helped me with the print. Uh, and this is the width of the paper. But the print could be... F- four times larger for the resolution. And then it will show more detail even. Yeah. Now you don't see the sheep, but uh, with the zoomed in versions of smaller prints of some areas, then you can actually just uh, count the sheep. Then we would know when the satellite images were taken because I'm sure everyone around here who has sheep would know when their sheep were <laughs> on which part. Uh, I think you can you can read it from other uh, bits uh, like the, the the mobile snack bar where it was positioned and uh, the the fallen apart caravans where they where they were, where they were and before they were cleaned up uh, and all sorts. I mean you can read the season of course. Um. Hey, and you mentioned limitations, but so the the map also ends rather roughly. Like there's this beautiful landscape, and then the edges are like cut at rectangles. You can see at the edges how you positioned all these different uh, screen dumps one over the other. You see it's a collage, but why does it stop there? Like, why not the sea or the... Yeah, so in, in the west and the south, it stops and you can see that there is a, um, there's a border of a detailless, yeah, a detailless uh, blue, which is basically what the satellite data gives. And the satellites just stop uh, at the sh- in, when the ocean starts. I, I just stopped there also. Because those were pretty impossible to uh, match, because there's just like, blue. <laughs> yeah. And this is just one of your map endeavors, because yesterday you also spoke of a soft contour map where you use altitude lines 
Um, you're also working now, it, so it feeds back into Nogvolubun on a, on a website. Um, you gave it a, a name that you derived from Chiriragan. And it's a website where you are trying to, if I understood it well last night, to position all the projects that you're doing here at Nogvolubun, which are always in situ projects, very site-specific. And you position them in that digital landscape, right? Yeah. Um, so it's... it's, it's um yeah, it's, it's pretty much exactly that. Um, what, what I didn't um, say during the lecture or the presentation uh, the other night was that the plan is to synchronize the digital space with the weather uh, and other uh, life factors. So what we really wanted uh, is bring the friction that we feel daily life in the landscape, bring that to the digital space uh, with all its, you know, like, yeah, with all its problems. So the day and night is there already, so we can make sure that projects are visible or invisible during the day or night. So next year we'll probably get uh, two residency artists and they want to explore the night as their research. So of course that project would then be only visible during the night as well. And we, we use MUL time or like UK time. Um, so that's one thing. So high and low tide projects that are about the shore, say about... Um, about a seaweed poem that's written on the shore. It would not be visible at high tide, but would with low tide. But you would also not be able to cross so all these literal sort of frictions that we feel we want, want to have that embedded. And at the same time, we try to make it an archive of all the projects we do. But not all, everything will be visible and available all the time. And it's sort of a reaction to sort of, I think, the time where we want everything available always. Uh, and like this project is not going to be like that. Like I think, yeah, th that's our daily practice to think it, it, it again connects to what we talked about earlier. So what is our role and are we seen already by the, by the, the landscape, let's say, and, and it accounts for the local community as well, you know, where, um, so everything you, you, you make or you produce has a, has a, has a backside. Because what I really find interesting is that you use this digital um, representation to show things that you don't see in real life. The, the, three, the 360 panorama photo you cannot see in one go. So I think it's super interesting that you both, you in your language and you in the representation of what we see and what we do and the data that provides, are working with the, with this friction between what's here and now and what could be or what what is imaginative and what is not. Yeah, you shift something there, and there's a consequence immediately. Um, so you you make something available somewhere. <clears throat> you show something, but the showing, you know, um, I mean that's all. That's the showing is in a way it's political because you you emphasize one aspect, which shadow puts another aspect in the shade. And I think that's sort of the reason why we came with the idea of working with guest artists and researchers is that we, with all their visions, you know, their their translations, you you end up with a um, sort of layered tapestry of what what the land is made up of. But maybe this understanding of the world um, around us and the complexity of us and our own role in it. Um, goes very well with, with just leading a day-to-day -day life. Because when you talk about your daily life here, like waking up, baking bread, feeding the chicken, 
working the garden. Well, I can go on endlessly because there are so many things to take care of and to, that need attention. And also to stay literally alive because you need warmth. <laughs> you need calories to take in because you need to to do a lot of um, bodily work to burn the calories. Maybe we, we can close the conversation with that to go back to that sort of basic, I wouldn't say struggle, but basic daily dance of life here. I think, uh, uh, if I may, um, the dance is nicely said because I think our like this year, for the first year, we f felt that um, struggles come also from seeing time in a linear way, like, you know, how you would probably see experience time in this city or at least how we, uh, looking back, how we were used to. And then here also with the garden um, and thinking of permaculture is th thinking in time as circular. So it's a lot of actions we do, like bread baking and um, maintenance and gardening. And, and they're, all, they're all circles repeating, sort of they all come back, but they're at circles at different like uh, s speeds. So some things come back just once a year. And then doing the things is really about timing the well, that they coincide with another action. And if, if there's a bad timing of something, then you feel the friction and it just doesn't work. And it's just slowly that we manage to integrate our like daily mundane things into those rhythm of or dance of circles. And then it, it doesn't feel so heavy. I mean, but there's a lot of things we still have to do that don't really fit in that sort of flow. And that's like sometimes quite frustrating. Yeah, I don't know if I can explain it really clear, but it it now feels that the wind or the, the well, the weather suggests something that we can do that day and we start doing that. And then it is very important to to complete that as far as possible that action. So if, if there are like if the rose hips are ripe, then it's important to gather them and to yeah to cut them in half and then to freeze them. In the beginning, that was we, we did a lot of it. All this work was there to be done, and then we were not able to finish it at an important stage, and then you just lose everything you are doing. And also building something in the wrong place, like you you lose out of, you lose it out of sight, and then you forget the maintenance, and then it just rots away so quickly or rusts away. So there's a lot of thinking what we do start to do now, and this like since we're here five years, we understand a bit better where like where in place and time yeah. to do the things, uh, and, it, and it, it will take another um, quite a few more years to to get it, you know. But after five years of dancing around the house and the elements and the landscape and the people and the neighbors, because the neighbors, the people around you are important. Um, does it feel like you've arrived, that you've really arrived here? That there are some roots rooting into the ground? I'm not so sure about that. No? I'm not so sure about that. No? <laughs> no. And I, and I feel also, yeah, still, but I, uh, but maybe that's not the need anymore for me to have like deep roots here because yeah I will be also it's just a little time that I'm here uh, but yeah but I'm 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 here now this is the place where I want to be it's not really about us being here I mean we do these things but in a way we're tapping into uh, actions that would have or should have been done or could have been done 
also without us. So it's just, yeah, it's it's. And we we had this moment where we had a conversation, or we started to notice the conversations with neighbors, and we were thinking, I bet this conversation uh, has taken place a couple of centuries ago as well. So it's just an ongoing conversation, and you step into it. And and that's quite beautiful to be part of that. But at the same time, it's not about us. But you you give it a you know you give it a swing. This is my cue to read out a super nice uh, sentence that we had seen uh, that we picked up also from your letter to Tizirigan. The friction of the land makes us wonder if we can live here or if we will remain guests. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Traveling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues.